white laws, white power. Laws have been passed and interpreted and enforced in ways designed to maximize the control white people exercise over people of color, but they've also been broken, ignored, and under-enforced with the same aim in mind. When the demands of white supremacy and the requirements of the law have conflicted, the maintenance of white supremacy has almost always appeared higher on the police agenda. Police illegality and complicity in white terror continue in an unbroken sequence from Reconstruction to today. In the early 20th century, police reestablished their ties to the newly reconstituted Klan. During the 1920s, Klansmen were enlisted to aid the authorities in their fight against the evils of alcohol and communism. In 1930, John G. Murphy, a member of the Alabama Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, testified before the House Special Committee to investigate communist activities, also called the Fish Committee, that the Klan helped the Birmingham police and the FBI keep track of communists by following Communist Party organizers, identifying people at their meetings, and so on. In other places, whole claverns were deputized for prohibition raids, and many cops signed up in the Invisible Empire. The extent of joint membership was often startling. In 1922, when Los Angeles District Attorney Thomas Lee Woolwine raided area Klan headquarters and seized their records, he discovered the Los Angeles Chief of Police, Louis D. Oakes, Sheriff William I. Traeger, and U.S. Attorney Joseph Burke were all connected to the Klan. The police chief and police judge in nearby Bakersfield were both members, as were seven Fresno officers, 25 cops in San Francisco, and about a tenth of the public officials and police in the rest of California's cities. Further north, in Portland, Oregon, the connection between the police and the Klan was public knowledge. In 1923, the Portland Telegram reported that the police bureau was, quote, full to the brink with Klansmen, unquote. At times, this relationship was officially sanctioned, as when the police bureau deputized 100 Klansmen, specially selected by Grand Dragon Fred Gifford, designated them Portland Police Vigilantes. Of course, Klan membership was not limited to policemen. The Portland-based Klan Number 1 boasted 15,000 members, and on March 3, 1923, it hosted a banquet featuring Governor Walter Pierce and Mayor George L. Baker. When the Klan was at the peak of its power in Colorado, it counted among its members many prominent businessmen, state representatives, and senators. The Colorado Secretary of State, four judges, two federal narcotics agents, and scores of police. In Denver, the mayor, city attorney, manager of public safety, two deputy sheriffs, the chief of police, and a police inspector were all Klan members. Former Mayor George D. Begole claimed that the Klan controlled the Civil Service Commission, Fire Department, and police. During the 1930s, about 100 Michigan cops, including the chief of police in Pontiac, joined either the Klan or its successor organization, the Black Legion. The Black Legion, in addition to attacking racial minorities, embarked on a deliberate campaign targeting the left. They beat and sometimes murdered suspected radicals, bombed their offices, and burned their homes. An investigation in New York found 407 cops belonging to the pro-fascist Christian Front. In his memoirs, Atlanta Police Chief Herbert Jenkins described the Klan's influence in Southern police departments. Quote, in the 30s in Atlanta and throughout the South, it was helpful to join the Ku Klux Klan to be an accepted member of the force. This was your ID card, the badge of honor with the in-group, and it was unfortunately often an allegiance stronger than the policeman's oath to society. Not every member of the Atlanta force belonged to the Klan, but those who did not had very little authority or influence. 
The Klan was powerful in that it worked behind the scenes with certain members of the police committee and the city council. A well-liked and respected member of the department, who was not a Klan member, could still get promoted through the ranks if supported by the Klan. But as he owed his rank to the Klan, he could never defy them for fear of his job and his life. The Klan was like a kind of mafia in dirty sheets." Unquote. Also during the early part of the 20th century, the police again played a significant role in the nation's numerous race riots. Starting the century out badly on August 15, 1900, a fight between black people and New York City police escalated into a riot, with Irish mobs in the streets attacking black passers-by. Police refused to protect black citizens, and in many cases joined in on the attacks. Despite considerable evidence, the police commissioners refused to discipline their officers, noting that black witnesses, quote, displayed a strong and bitter feeling while under examination, unquote. The police took a more active role in the Detroit riot of 1943. The disorder began on June 20 with a short-lived skirmish between black and white patrons at the Belle Isle Amusement Park. More of a brawl than a riot, really more of a fight than a brawl, the initial conflict was over nearly as soon as it began. The police interposed, arresting several black people and sending the rest away. But a rumor spread that a black man had raped a white woman during the encounter, and soon white mobs were attacking black patrons at the Roxy Theater. The disorder soon spread throughout white Woodward neighborhood, and crowds beat, stabbed, and shot black people and stoned their cars. Around the same time, a rumor spread through the black neighborhoods of Hastings and Adams that white sailors had thrown a black woman and her baby into a lake at Belle Isle. Black people began attacking white people in the area and breaking the windows in white-owned businesses. The police attacked black crowds with clubs, and, where looting was most prevalent, shot at anyone inside the stores. Black bystanders were ordered to run and not look back. Many were shot as they did. Police also used hit-and-run tactics against small groups of black people, quite removed from the riot area. They would pull up in a squad car near a group of black people. Several officers would then jump out, beat them, get back in the car, and drive away. That night, a cop was shot in a vacant lot near Werner Highway. He returned fire, and the assailant was killed. Nevertheless, the police retaliated against the entire neighborhood. They laid siege to an apartment building at 290 East Werner, shining searchlights on the building and firing into it with revolvers, rifles, and machine guns. They eventually forced the residents out with tear gas and beat them as they fled. Then the apartments were ransacked, doors kicked in, locks broken, furniture overturned. Money, jewelry, and liquor were stolen. In an article titled The Gestapo in Detroit, NAACP attorney and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall reported, quote, They used persuasion rather than firm action with white rioters, while against Negroes they used the ultimate in force, nightsticks, revolvers, riot guns, submachine guns, and deer guns, unquote. He concluded, quote, this record of the Detroit police demonstrates once more that what all Negroes know only too well, that nearly all police departments limit their conception of checking racial disorders to surrounding, arresting, maltreating, and shooting Negroes. Little attempt is made to check the activities of whites." Unquote. Of the 34 people killed, 25 were black and 9 were white. The police killed 17 black people and none who were white. Judge George Edwards of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, described the riot as, quote, open warfare between the Detroit Negroes and the Detroit Police Department, unquote. Birmingham, Bull Connor and the Law. Shortly after World War II, resistance to white supremacy began to accumulate a critical mass. 
Nearly a century after the Civil War, black people had had enough, more than enough, of empty promises and the thin simulacrum of freedom that had been their lot since the end of slavery. Tired of being excluded and exploited, sick of segregation and second-class citizenship, they determined to, as James Foreman put it, either sit at a table or knock the fucking legs off of it. First in the South, but soon throughout the country, black people were demanding their due of white society. And white people, as ever, were serious about not giving it to them. The police occupied their traditional place, standing firmly in the way of African Americans' efforts to win their rights. The situation demanded nothing new of the police, though in times of crisis their function may have been a bit clearer than usual, as the rhetoric of legal impartiality slipped further and further away from them. Birmingham's police chief, Bull Connor, put it plainly, quote, We don't give a damn about the law. Down here we make our own law, unquote. It was a startling admission from a man sworn to uphold the law, but undoubtedly true. Connor and his police department epitomized a type of law enforcement characteristic of the time, though sadly persisting to the present day. Most famously, in 1963, Birmingham became the shame of the nation when television footage showed demonstrators with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference being beaten by Connor's officers, attacked by police dogs, and sprayed with fire hoses. Reverend Fred Shuttleworth had to be taken away in an ambulance. Connor expressed his disappointment. Quote, it should have been a hearse, unquote. Connor's disdain for Shuttleworth had a long history. In 1958, when the Reverend's home had been bombed, Connor publicly accused Shuttleworth of doing it himself. The accusation, made without evidence, came in the midst of a bombing campaign commonly known to be the work of the Klan. Black homes and Jewish synagogues were attacked so often that one part of the city was nicknamed Dynamite Hill. The fire department, which was also under Connor's control, generally let the buildings burn down entirely, and the police made no serious efforts to investigate the attacks. Connor preferred to blame civil rights workers for stirring up trouble. Connor expressed special animosity for out-of-town meddlers like the Freedom Riders, black and white people traveling together to desegregate interstate bus lines. In 1961, the Congress of Racial Equality, Corps, Freedom Rides, came through Birmingham. Connor had the riders arrested, drove them to the Tennessee line, and left them stranded on the highway. When they returned, on Mother's Day 1961, they were beaten by a group of Klansmen while Connor watched from a nearby office building. As we shall see, the Mother's Day incident illustrates not only the extent to which police shared the aims of organized racist groups, I am tempted to say other organized racist groups, but also actively cooperated with them. This connection was not incidental, nor was it an isolated occurrence. To understand something of its depth, we should turn briefly to examine the career of Gary Rowe. The Strange Career of Gary Rowe Gary Rowe was an FBI infiltrator in the Ku Klux Klan, working in that capacity from 1959 to 1965. Though not personally sympathetic to the Klan, he had, by his own admission, quote, beaten people severely, had boarded buses and kicked people, had gone into restaurants and beaten them with blackjacks, chains, pistols, unquote. All this he did while on the FBI payroll. Rowe reported, sometimes in advance, about attacks on black people at a county fair at sit-ins and on freedom rides, including advanced warning about the Mother's Day attack of 1961. When he asked why nothing was done to stop the assault, his FBI handler told him, quote, Who the hell are we going to report to? The police department helped set it up, unquote. And indeed they had. In April 1961, Detective Sergeant Tom Cook, the commander of the Birmingham Police Department Red Squad, provided the Klan with a list of civil rights groups, the locations of their meetings, and the names of their members. He went on to offer them full access to the Red Squad's files. 
As it happened, the man Cook passed the information to was Gary Rowe. Ironically, Cook told Rowe that the Eastview Klansmen had been infiltrated by the Feds, and promised to help them learn the identity of the snitch. Further irony, Rowe was actually a triple agent, assigned by the Klan to attend civil rights meetings and report back. He also gave these reports to the FBI. Together, Cook and Rowe organized a series of meetings between Birmingham clan leader Hubert Pape, Imperial Wizard Robert Shelton, Bull Connor, and themselves. At these meetings, they planned a response to the Freedom Rides. The clan would meet the bus at the terminal, and the police would wait at least 15 minutes before arriving. Connor recommended beating and stripping any black people who entered the restroom. Quote, make them look like a bulldog got hold of them, unquote. Cook added, Quote, I don't give a damn if you beat them, bomb them, murder them, or kill them. I don't give a shit. I don't want them in Alabama when you're through with them. Unquote. The plan went through as agreed. By the time the police showed up, the Freedom Riders had been beaten with iron bars, and most of the Klansmen had gone. Those remaining were sent away rather than being arrested. Rowe had informed the FBI of the plan, and the FBI dutifully put it in their files, while allowing the Klan to move ahead. Rose Handler claimed that there was nothing they could do because of the involvement of the local police, but the FBI also played a further role in the Mother's Day attack. Government documents released during the 1978 lawsuit revealed that the FBI had provided the Birmingham police with the details of the Freedom Riders' plan, knowing that the information would reach the Ku Klux Klan. Thus, the Birmingham police provided a conduit for information to pass between the FBI and the KKK while maintaining the federal government's shield of plausible deniability and Roe, by monitoring clan activity and reporting to the feds, served to confirm that the information they provided reached its intended audience. The FBI finally used Roe against the clan in 1965, after the murder of Viola Liuzzo. Roe and three others shot Liuzzo as she drove demonstrators back to Selma after a march to Montgomery. Leroy Moten, who was traveling with Liuzzo, described the shooting. Quote, I looked at my watch. It was like 8 o'clock and I reached over for the radio, and that's when I felt this glass and everything hit me in the face, and the car going off the road. Miss Liuzzo, Mrs. Liuzzo, last thing she said was, I was just thinking of this song, before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. By the time she got grave out, that was when she was shot. That's when the glass started hitting me in the face. We ran into an embankment, a ditch, came out of it, and ran into a fence, and I reached over and called her, shook her, she didn't say anything. That's when I turned the motor off and the lights. This other car came back, stopped, and I looked over my left shoulder and I seen it. I saw the door open and I passed out for about a half hour. I understand they thought I was dead too, because the blood was on my face from the glass hitting me. They figured I was dead. Only the good lord saved me." Unquote. The FBI had 70 agents in the area at the time of the attack, but made no move to, pre to prevent the violence. Worse, the police may have had a role in marking Liuzzo as a target. At a press conference after the murder, a Klan spokesman cited details of her life, drawn from the files of the Detroit Police Department's Special Investigations Bureau. The Klansmen were, especially, were eventually arrested for murder and acquitted. The Justice Department then prosecuted them for civil rights violations. Based on Rowe's testimony, they were convicted and sentenced to the maximum of ten years. A Senate committee later summed up his career. Quote, Rowe provided the FBI with a great deal of information on planned and actual violence by the Klan throughout his years as an informant. Only rarely, however, did Rowe's information lead to the prevention of violence or arrests of Klan members. 
There were several reasons for this, including the difficulty of relying on local police to enforce the law against the Klan in the early 1960s, the failure of the federal government to initially mobilize its own resources, and the role of the FBI as an investigative rather than a police organization. Unquote. The investigative rather than police mission of the FBI was a political fiction popular at the time, providing a technical excuse for federal inaction. Actually, Section 3052, Title 18 of the U.S. Administrative Code empowered the FBI to make arrests without warrants, quote, for any offense against the United States committed in their presence, unquote. The availability of federal marshals for law enforcement purposes also remained conveniently forgotten. Whatever Rowe's own intentions, the inaction of his superiors was certainly culpable, and their explanations disingenuous. Mississippi for underneath her borders, the devil draws no line. Even where white violence was at its most extreme, even where black people were most oppressed, the federal government was loath to act. Its position for most of a century had been that black people were on their own, or, put differently, that local officials were free to treat them in whatever way they saw fit. When the federal government was moved to act, it was usually because some particular atrocity created a national uproar. One such event was the 1964 disappearance of three civil rights workers in the Mississippi backcountry. On June 21, 1964, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman traveled to Philadelphia, Mississippi to investigate a fire at a black church. They never returned. This was just one of many instances of violence and intimidation visited upon the participants of the Mississippi Summer Project, organized by the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO, a coalition including the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, SNCC, CORE, the National Council of Churches, and the NAACP. The violence used against civil rights workers was audacious and severe, but more staggering was the violence against the black community at large. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner weren't the only three men to disappear in Mississippi that summer. They're just the three who made headlines. They're the three we remember. When white people were disappeared, people noticed, and Schwerner and Goodman were white. When black people disappeared, who cared? Who took notice? Black folks could vanish. Black folks could hang, without stirring even a mutter from the nation's newspapers, without so much as a report from the FBI. Dave Dennis, a field secretary for Corps, draws out the point. Quote, During the time they were looking for the bodies of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, they found other bodies throughout the state. They found torsos in the Mississippi River, they found people who were burned. They even found a few bodies of people on the side of the roads. As soon as it was determined that these bodies were not the three missing workers, or one of the three, these deaths were forgotten. That's what we were talking about, in terms of what the Freedom Summer was all about, in terms of why it was necessary to bring that attention there. Because people forget, and if it had just been blacks there, they would have forgotten again. It would just have been three black people missing. Unquote. Following the disappearances, COFO collected 257 affidavits for use in a lawsuit against the Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, among others. 57 of these were selected as typical and printed as the Mississippi Black Paper. The lawsuit, Council of Federated Organizations et al. versus L.A. Rainey et al., was filed on July 19, 1964. It alleged, quote, Murders, bombings, burnings, beatings, terrorization, and intimidation continue throughout the state at a steadily increasing tempo without any attempts by the state or local authorities to prevent them. 
In many instances, the police themselves were and are directly involved or have tacitly or openly encouraged and encourage the form of brutalization being employed, unquote. As documentation, COFO provided, quote, approximately 90 affidavits as to illegal acts of Mississippi law enforcement officers against civil rights workers and the Negro citizens of Mississippi, including physical violence, intimidation, harassments, unprovoked arrests, and prolonged unjustified incarceration, which are daily continuing, approximately 35 affidavits as to the failure of Mississippi law enforcement officers to take any or adequate steps to safeguard civil rights workers and Negro citizens against physical violence and property destruction, although fully warned in advance of the possibility of their occurrence, all of which is daily continuing. Approximately 35 affidavits as to the failure of law enforcement officers of Mississippi to prosecute known perpetrators of violence, destruction, and terrorism against the persons and property of civil rights workers and Negro citizens, all of which is daily continuing." Unquote. The black paper makes for disturbing reading. At times, it is distinctly reminiscent of the statements former slaves made about the patrols. One young woman testifies, quote, On February 6, 1962, when I was 19, I was walking with a young man down a Clarksdale street when Clarksdale police officers, blank and blank, stopped us and accused me of having been involved in a theft. I was taken to jail by the officers and they forced me to unclothe and lie on my back. One of the officers beat me between my legs with a belt. A few minutes later, the other officer began to beat me across my naked breasts." Unquote. The range of abuses described is astonishing, sometimes within even a single deposition. Douglas MacArthur Cotton, for example, tells of being followed by the Macomb police as he canvassed for a mock election. Quote, Police followed me wherever I went, stood beside me on the front porch of people, photographing them and taking their names while I was talking to them." Unquote. More terrifying, he also attests to the abuse of prisoners. Quote, on approximately July 20, Willie Carnell was hung by his hands to the cell bars for 30 hours. Guards accused him of singing. Unquote. These documents help to situate Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney's disappearance, their murder, within a broader pattern of ongoing violence. In her deposition, Rita Schwerner, the wife of one of the missing men, tells of the numerous threats they received and the constant harassment by police officers. She remembers one occasion when her husband went to bail out picketers who had been arrested. The desk sergeant told him, quote, If you get any more of these damn kids arrested, Schwerner, I'm going to get you, and that's a promise. Unquote. Such threats were not made or taken lightly. Someone did get Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman and James Cheney. After a long investigation, the FBI found an informant who was willing to talk. He led them to an earthen dam where the three men were buried, and told investigators what happened on the night they disappeared. Deputy Cecil Price arrested Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. He released them in the middle of the night, and then pulled them over again. This time, Price put them in his car and drove them to a deserted area, where Klansmen shot and killed them. Nineteen men were charged with conspiracy to deprive the activists of their civil rights. Among them were Sheriff Rainey, Deputy Price, and a Philadelphia, Mississippi police officer. Quote, the participation of a law officer was evidently considered vital to the conspiracy. Not only would the civil rights workers be more likely to stop for a marked police car, Southern lynch mobs had traditionally had their victims handed over to them by police, a convenience that lent the proceeding a shade of social legitimacy. Unquote. In October 1967, a jury of white Mississippians convicted Price and six Klansmen. Price was sentenced to six years and served four. Rainey, who was not part of the original conspiracy but aided in the cover-up, was acquitted. But he was removed from his position as sheriff and never regained the office. 
Though Rainey retained his freedom and racist violence continued, the trial ended a terrible reign in Neshoba County. During his time in law enforcement, Rainey, who voiced open support for the Klan, had been involved in a great many beatings, arbitrary arrests, and incidents of harassment directed against black people and civil rights workers. They had also been, he had also been a party to at least two suspicious shootings, in addition to those of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. In one case, he had, gun drawn, approached a black couple sitting in a parked car and ordered them out. When the man complied, Rainey shot and killed them. That was in October 1959. Rainey had been a Philadelphia, Mississippi police officer. Shortly thereafter, he became a Neshoba County Sheriff's deputy and was party to a second shooting. He and Sheriff Hop Barnett were transporting a handcuffed black man to the state mental hospital when they say he reached for one of their guns. Barnett shot him fatally. A torch had been passed, Barnett to Rainey, Rainey to Price. With Price in prison and Rainey disgraced, historically granted us a moment of hope. History granted us a moment of hope. But hope is not the same thing as justice. Three good men lay in their graves, needlessly, and others, unnamed, uncounted, continued to rot in riverbeds, ditches, and swamps. There would be more. Other, larger torches had been passed a century before, from slave patrol to police, from slave patrol to clan. These fires still burned, an unholy, fiery cross. Selma, Alabama, Bloody Sunday Violence continued elsewhere in the South, with police in the vanguard and the Klan in the wings. Unfortunately, Birmingham was only the most notorious example of police repression. Throughout the South, cops followed Bull Connor's example. Albert Truner described a march in Marion, Alabama, near Selma. Quote, As we went out of the church to begin the actual march, we got about a half a block from the door, the sheriff and several troopers halted us. We were told that we was an unlawful assembly and that we had to disband the demonstration and go back to the church. We had planned already to have a prayer at that point. We had Reverend James Dobbins, who had got down to pray. And they took Reverend Dobbins, who was on his knees immediately behind me, and they just started beating him right there on the ground. That was probably the viciousest thing I have ever seen. They beat him and they took him by his heels and drug him to jail. At that point, they had state troopers all over the city, and plainclothes people, a lot of citizens really was involved. They beat black people wherever they found them." Unquote. One man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, was severely beaten by state troopers and then shot at close range. He died as a result on February 26, 1965. Jackson's death served to mobilize increasing numbers of people and inspired civil rights groups to escalate their actions. A march was planned in response to Jackson's murder from Selma to Montgomery on Sunday, March 7. Governor George Wallace prohibited the march, saying that it would be impossible to protect the demonstrators. Ignoring or defying him, 600 people gathered in Brown's Chapel in Selma. As the crowd moved out of the church building and through the town, they were attacked by state police under the command of John Cloud and by the deputies of Sheriff Jim Clark. The police used clubs, tear gas, cattle prods, horses and dogs. Seventeen people were hospitalized as a result, including an eight-year-old. Forty others were treated at a Good Samaritan hospital and released. March 7, 1965 became known as Bloody Sunday. The violence in Selma forced President Johnson's hand on the civil rights issue. On March 15, in a televised address to Congress, he announced that he would introduce voter registration legislation, underscoring his intentions with the movement's slogan, We Shall Overcome. Historian Howard Zinn explains the change in policy. Quote, Selma became a national scandal, an international embarrassment for the Johnson administration. Unquote. 
but the nation's sheriffs were not embarrassed by the violence. Even less were they moved by Johnson's speech. Barely a year after he led the attack at Selma, they elected Sheriff Jim Clark to head their national association. Panthers and Police The country's sheriffs weren't the only ones unimpressed by LBJ's gesture. While the white establishment was wringing its hands over integration, voter registration, and the free speech rights of black people, the civil rights movement was transforming itself, redefining its goals to keep pace with its successes, rethinking its tactics in light of its defeats. A new militancy emerged. The sweet tune of We Shall Overcome gradually faded into the background, replaced by the more forceful cries of Black Power and, in Watts, Burn Baby Burn. Emblematic of the new militancy, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense appeared in Oakland in 1966. Formed by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, the Panthers offered a comprehensive 10-point program for addressing the injustices facing the black community. In keeping with the principles of their program, the Panthers provided free breakfasts for schoolchildren, ran free medical clinics, gave away shoes and clothing, and, most famously, organized armed patrols against police brutality. The Panthers' politics were surely enough to raise the ire of the white elites, and the sight of black people with guns created something of a panic among government officials. The Panthers posed a challenge to white society, and in the form of patrols to the police in particular. Of course, some response was expected, but the viciousness of the government attack was remarkable even by the standards of the time. Harassment, arrests, and violence were constant threats. In 1969 alone, police raided Panther offices in San Francisco, Los Angeles twice, Chicago three times, Denver, Sacramento, and San Diego. In nearly every case, several Panthers were arrested. In at least two of the raids, office equipment and food for distribution in the community were destroyed. One Panther was killed in LA, two in Chicago. By the end of the year, 30 Panthers were charged with capital offenses, 40 faced life imprisonment, 55 faced sentences of up to 30 years, and another 155 were either in jail or in hiding. Not all the attacks on Panthers involved raids, arrests, or gun battles. Drivers with Black Panther bumper stickers complained of routine harassment by the police. In 1969, a professor at California State College in Los Angeles decided to test their claims. He assembled a group of 15 student volunteers, five black, five white, five Mexican, three men and two women in each group, all with perfect driving records. They affixed to their vehicles orange and black bumper stickers featuring a picture of a panther and the words Black Panthers. Within two hours, one of the students had received a ticket for an incorrect lane change. On the fourth day of the experiment, one student was forced to quit because he had received three tickets and was in danger of losing his license. Three others reached the three-ticket limit within a week. After 17 days, the $500 fund to pay for tickets hit zero, and the experiment officially ended. All the participants removed the stickers from their cars. A total of 33 citations had been issued, with no variation according to race, sex, style of dress, or type of vehicle. Some of the cars were searched, and a white woman was questioned at length about her reasons for supporting criminal activity. Police tactics were not limited to raids, arrests, and petty harassment. Disinformation, the use of informants to create rifts within the party, and the promotion of violent rivalries between the Black Panthers and similar organizations also hampered the Panthers' efforts. This was, of course, precisely the point. The Panthers personified everything that white society most feared 
black people, armed and smart, militant, radical, and organized. In attacks on the Panthers, the racist undertones of police actions often came to the surface. In 1968, members of a New York police organization, the Law Enforcement Group, packed a courtroom where Panthers were being tried and beat Panther supporters with blackjacks in the hallway outside. They shouted slogans such as, Win with Wallace and White Power. Since the 60s. While it's uncommon these days to hear police chiefs publicly sounding like Bull Connor, and while police departments have added increasing numbers of minorities to their ranks, the use of the police to control people of color and guard white supremacy continues in a refined form. Race-based tactics remain in prominent use. Racist ideology still exercises a strong pull on individual officers, and racist organizing within law enforcement has entered a new phase. Michael Novick of Police Against Racist Terror lists more than 50 incidents of police involvement in racist organizing between 1976 and 1994. His chronology represents occurrences across the country and describes the involvement of police, prison guards, and federal agents in building racist organizations, attacking minorities, and ignoring or engaging in clan-style terrorism. To give just a brief example, from Novick's list and elsewhere, in 1978, the Klan publicly revealed its penetration of police agencies in northern Mississippi. In 1980, the San Diego Police Department assigned a reserve officer to infiltrate the Klan. Through him, the department provided funding, equipment, and other assistance to a petition drive to place noted white supremacist Tom Metzger on the ballot for Congress. In Chicago's 1983 mayoral race, members of Police for Epton sided with a white Republican against black candidate Harold Washington. Police decorated their uniforms with plain white buttons, or buttons with a circle and a slash around a picture of a watermelon. The media also uncovered a plot to target black neighborhoods for mass arrests on the eve of the election. The idea was subsequently abandoned. A couple of years later, in 1985, Alex Young was fired from the Jefferson County, Kentucky Police Force after passing data from police files to the KKK. Young had earlier founded the department's chapter of Confederate Officers Patriot Squad, COPS. In 1988, Former Youngstown, Pennsylvania Police Chief David Garner was indicted for providing armed guards to protect a counterfeiting operation run by the white supremacist group Posse Comitatus. Two white LAPD homicide detectives were reprimanded in 1989 for displaying the flag of apartheid South Africa on their squad car. Around the same time, two black cops complained that Nazi and Klan literature was being circulated in the station houses. Soon thereafter, one of the whistleblowers, Donald Jackson, was attacked by white Long Beach officers. They threw him through a plate glass window. On June 1991, Indianapolis police officer Wayne Sharp shot and killed Edmund Powell, a black man suspected of shoplifting. Sharp claimed Powell attacked him with a nail-studded board, but witnesses said that Powell was lying on the ground when Sharp shot him. It was soon learned that Sharp had killed a black burglary suspect ten years before and had briefly been involved with the National Socialist White People's Party. A jury awarded Powell's family $456,000, but Sharp was never disciplined. In September of that same year, a class action suit against the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office cited 130 abuses occurring within 104 days, mostly against black people and Latinos. The lawsuit covered 69 warrantless searches 31 uses of excessive force, and 16 incidents described by attorney James Foster as, 
quote, outright torture, meaning interrogations with stun guns, beating victims into unconsciousness, holding a gun in a victim's mouth, and pulling the trigger on an empty chamber, unquote. Foster attributed much of the violence to a racist gang of deputies called the Vikings. A simultaneous scandal affected the LAPD when a Klan group was found to be operating in the Foothill Division, home of the officers who beat Rodney King. The next year, as the Rodney King case went to trial, the Klan organized rallies in Simi Valley with the slogan, Support the Police. Neither the Simi Valley Police Chief nor the Ventura County Sheriff ever repudiated this support though they were called on to do so by members of the local community. Also in the wake of the Rodney King beating, police officers, especially black officers, who agreed to testify before the Christopher Commission, found themselves ostracized and sometimes threatened by their colleagues. One black cop, Garland Hardiman, discovered a chalk outline in front of his locker, marked to indicate two bullet wounds in the head. After testifying before the commission, another officer found a hangman's noose tied to his telephone. Most recently, in March 2003, FBI Special Agent Joseph Thompson acknowledged ties between Police the Klan and probably the largest Nazi organization in the country, the National Alliance. When Chester James Doles, the Georgia organizer for the National Alliance and a longtime Klan member, was arrested on gun charges, Agent Thompson testified at his bail hearing, quote, Mr. Doles has a support network including law enforcement, unquote. Thompson explained that the involvement of police, quote, vastly increases the capacity of the network, unquote, because cops, quote, can look the other way, unquote. Greensboro, Death and the Klan. Throughout the 20th century, as overt racism grew less respectable, the long-established partnership between police and racist extremists was intentionally obscured. When it was no longer possible to deputize entire claverns, or to brag of clan support in political campaigns, the two types of organizations returned to something like their Reconstruction-era roles, the police defending white supremacy through overt and legalistic means, the clan and similar groups pursuing the same ends through agitation and terrorism. The cop-clan consensus persisted, but more quietly. Joint action continued, but secretly. It was and is no less deadly. The events of November 3, 1979 proved that. In Greensboro, North Carolina, on November 3, 1979, Klansmen and members of the American Nazi Party acting together as the United Racist Front gunned down demonstrators assembled for a Death to the Klan rally organized by the Communist Workers' Party. Five labor leaders and community organizers, Jim Waller, Sandy Smith, Bill Sampson, Caesar Souse, and Mike Nathan, were killed and ten other people were wounded. At the time of the attack, the Greensboro Police Department tactical squad was literally out to lunch, and routine patrols were mysteriously absent. Afterward, while slow to move against the Nazis, the police were quick to arrest eight anti-Klan demonstrators, charging them with planning a riot. One of the Klansmen, Eddie Dawson, was a paid informant for the Greensboro Police Department and previously for the FBI. Dawson later stated that he was in charge of the attack. He recruited the Klansmen and arranged the meeting with the Nazis, but he had a great deal of assistance in planning the massacre. The police supplied him with a copy of the parade permit, which noted the starting place and the route of the march. At the BATF agent, and a BATF agent, Bernard Butkovich, also in, 
infiltrated the United Racist Front and provided them with guns. Let me say that again clearly. An agent of the Greensboro Police Department assembled this band of assassins, drew up the plan, and saw the mission through to completion. Meanwhile, an agent of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms provided them weapons, and both agencies stood aside while a bloodbath ensued. The killers were tried twice, first for murder, then for civil rights violations. Both times, they were acquitted by all-white juries, despite video evidence provided by local television stations. Finally, in 1985, a lawsuit awarded three plaintiffs $390,000. The jury found three Nazis, two Klansmen, a police informant, and two cops liable for the wrongful death of Michael Nathan, but strangely, insisted that there had been no conspiracy. White Sheets, Blue Uniforms The police did not create the racism in American society. If anything, it's the other way around. But the police have, since their inception, enforced and defended the racist status quo by controlling slaves, maintaining segregation, resisting civil rights efforts, and generally terrorizing the black community and other people of color. This function has remained constant even when laws have changed. That is, even when it has conflicted with their official duties, the police have acted as a repressive force against the interests of people of color. It will surely be objected that I have singled out the police unfairly, it will be pointed out by critics at both ends of the political spectrum that all of Southern society, perhaps all of American society, had been implicated in racist violence. It's hardly surprising that policemen were also involved. Were my point simply that individual police officers were complicit, this complaint would be well-grounded, but it overlooks two major features of my argument. First, that the involvement of the police is different than the involvement of, say, dentists or auto mechanics. Second, and more importantly, the cop-clan connection is institutional, not merely individual. The participation of police officers in white supremacist organizations and racist violence is different than the involvement of other people because their police, the police are often professionally as well as personally involved. They use their professional position to advance the aims of the group. They use their standing in the community to legitimize vigilante violence, and they're often considered attractive recruits for just these reasons. The same may be true of certain other occupational groups as well, journalists, clergy, politicians, but cops engage in these crimes when they have sworn to stop them. To understand this contradiction, we must view it not only in terms of personal prejudice and individual action, but as a sustained institutional relationship. Historically, the police and the Klan have operated as parallel and, in general, mutually reinforcing types of organizations. Cops, like other officials, have sometimes drawn on the political support of the Klan to buttress their own authority. Conversely, the police can offer some degree of validation to Klan activity by lending it their support, or less directly, by refusing to treat racist violence as crime. At times, the police have supplied the institutional nucleus around which vigilante activity could orbit. The police as an institution have shared many of the aims, methods, and values of Klan-type groups. During the Reconstruction period, for example, police authority and vigilante activity neatly paralleled one another. In part, the similarities may be understood in terms of a family resemblance. Both the police and their young cousins, the Knight Riders, were still chronologically very near to their common ancestor, the slave patrols. But more importantly, in the South during this period, the very basis and constitution of authority and the nature of legality itself, as well as the particular laws, were hotly contested. 
Local elites remained loyal to the vanquished confederacy, mourned their lost cause, and held dear the values that had so long supported the racial and economic system of slavery, while the new status quo, amorphous and exhilarating, often relied for its preservation on the presence of federal troops. Under such conditions, it could be expected that the categories of legality and illegality, legitimate authority and illegitimate force, and order and disorder would become confused. What's remarkable is the degree to which the resemblance between the police and the clan has persisted. It may tell us a great deal about the real function and fundamental character of the police that, after more than a century of institutional development, legalism, bureaucratization, professionalization, and more than 100 years since the death of the Confederacy, they would continue to behave like racist terrorists. The police have persisted in denying black people the rights guaranteed to them by the Constitution, have actively sought to frustrate their efforts to exercise such rights or become, in a real sense, full citizens, and have resorted to the most vicious, brutal, and often patently unlawful means to do so. These facts can leave no doubt as to the institution's priorities when the demands of white supremacy clash with those of the law. The police cannot be considered simply the custodians of the legal order, but must be seen as the guardians of the social order as well. That they defend it wearing blue uniforms rather than white sheets is a matter of only minor importance. And that is the end of chapter 4. The next chapter is called The Natural Enemy of the Working Class.